I'd like you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, which will be our text for this morning. Verses 3, 4, and 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved for you in heaven, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I don't care what we hear from the world. I don't care how many atheists try to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't care how many books are written to try to get us to understand the resurrection of Christ any other way than what it was revealed in the scriptures to be. Jesus Christ is alive. He is not dead. He is not still in the tomb. If you go and found his, if you went and found his tomb today and dug it up, he would not be there because he's not there. He is alive, and that is our hope. Everything else that was said or done by Jesus Christ and the apostles really is secondary to the resurrection. It is the capstone of our faith. It is the central belief of our faith. And if you eliminate it, don't understand it, don't emphasize it, or don't understand it correctly. Our faith is worthless, and it means nothing. The resurrection is that important. Without the resurrection, our Christianity is nothing more than a false religion. However, if the resurrection happened the way that it, was, that it did happen, then Christ is God. He's God in the flesh, and the Christian faith is absolute. We live in this, this postmodern age where truth is subject to our thinking. That's a false way of thinking. It doesn't even, it doesn't even make sense logically. How can, how can one person say Christ is risen from the dead and another person say, no, he isn't, and both of them be right? How can one person say there is a God and another person say there is no God and both of them be right? It's impossible. If Jesus Christ rose from the grave and he did, then he is God and your faith in God is right. It's absolute. There is no other way to God. It has to be through Jesus Christ. There was nobody, no one else in the history of the world that did what he did. People are still trying to, to save people today. They're still trying to keep people alive as long as they, they can't. There's only one who has the power over life and death. God granted us life Death is because of the curse of sin, which God produced, and only he can overcome it. Our faith is real. It's not fake. I, I kind of feel bad for our kids, in a way, growing up in our society, where so many people are just denying everything. They deny 
the Bible. They deny prayer. They deny the, the validity of the church. They deny the authority of parents. They deny everything that doesn't have anything to do with you making yourself the most important person in the world. We live in such a humanistic society. Everything revolves around me. It's not true. Everything revolves around God. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We can do it now in obedience, or we can wait and do it now and, and do it then in judgment. But everybody will bow. All of the mockers, all of the people that we get embarrassed to talk to and about in this world will one day bow their knee before Christ and will realize that he is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Death really is our greatest enemy. There is no other. There may be people in our lives that we don't like, that we don't want to be around. There may be circumstances in our life that we're trying to clean up and trying to make better, but really, ultimately, the, the thing that we are trying to avoid most in our life is dying. We want to live. We have this insatiable desire to live, but no one can outwit death. No one can escape it. It always wins. Eventually, everybody turns back to dust, everyone except one. Jesus Christ. His flesh did not see corruption. He didn't turn back to dust, as we will in our graves. In fact, the reign of death not only applies to people, it applies to everything. It applies to animals. Animals die. We had two lovely cats that got taken by the road. Plants die, sometimes sooner than we want them to. Species become extinct. Nations and cities rise to power and then fade away. We teach our kids about ancient civilizations, Western civilizations. Things are not the same as they were a thousand years ago. There are cities that thrived and were world powers and world dominating powers, armies that don't exist today. They're gone. What happened to them? They're dead. Even non-living things break down and decay. Our houses, anybody who owns a house knows that. Our cars, the earth, the sun, even the universe itself is winding down. Scientists will tell you this with absolute certainty. Everything is tending toward a state of equilibrium in this, in this earth. Everything breaks down. I, I, Sometimes tell the students when I'm talking about this to them, what's your favorite car? You know, give some usually exotic car. I said, all right, so you buy your Lamborghini or whatever it's going to be. And what would happen if you bought that today and you parked it out in the field behind the church and left it there for 200 years? What's going to happen to it? The rubber's going to disintegrate, the plastic's going to become brittle, the glass is going to break, and by the time 200 years pass, there's probably not going to be much left at all of it. It's gone. Everything decays. The Bible describes this reign of death in Romans chapter 8, verse 21, as the bondage of corruption that the earth is seeking to escape from. We are enslaved to it. No one can get away from it. It's a curse, and we all feel it, and we all know it. I have something going on with my eye. I didn't ask for that. I woke up two days ago, and it looked like that. And I was like, 
what's going on? Look in the mirror, it doesn't look like me anymore. Something happened. Why? My body is not fit for eternity. It's breaking down. It's going to break down, and it's going to continue to break down until one day I won't be here anymore. But Jesus Christ is alive. He's not aging. He's not wrinkling. His knees aren't getting worse. He has no arthritis. His heart is going to keep beating forever because he resurrected from the grave to new life. There is no other man, there is no other God, there is no other event in history, no other miracle that we can turn to or point to that has overcome death. Try to think of one. There isn't any. There is only one man. There is only one God. There is only one historical event, only one miracle that was ever done that we can point to and, and say he overcame death. And if we even want a glimmer of hope of breaking this bondage of corruption, I mean, do you? Do you want that? I do. I, you know, when I was a kid, I used, like every other kid, I used to think I was going to live forever. And then you turn 20. And you think, all right, I'm in the prime of life. And then you turn 30. And then you think, I don't feel like I was when I was 20. This is the first time. I'm not supposed to feel this. And then you turn 40 and you go, uh-oh. Do we want to get over this? To have hope that there is something else besides this. I think so. I think we all do. I know when Al was preaching this morning in the early service, he was talking about the fact that we so often omit the resurrection from our presentation of the gospel. My question is, why don't we start with that? I mean, sure, we want our sins forgiven, but don't we want to live? Don't we want life? We're built that way. God made us that way. Jesus died and was buried like every other man, but unlike any other man, he returned from the grave. He resurrected his own body. Who can do that? Not me. Not you. Jesus did. He made it immortal. He's still living today. He's at the right hand of God the Father. He is coming back, and we will see him again. And again, you know, we, we say these things, and we say, yeah, yeah, I know it's what we're supposed to believe as Christians. No, it's true. We will see Jesus again, one way or the other. I want to see him face to face. So is it real? Did it really happen? Is it really possible for me, as a person, to break free of the bondage of corruption and break free from this curse of death? Well, yes, yes, and yes. The resurrection is real. It did really happen. You know, the resurrection was predicted in the Old Testament 
Genesis 3.15, Psalm 2.7, Psalm 16, 9-11, Psalm 22, 14-25, Psalm 30, 29, Psalm 40, 13, Psalm 110, verse 1, Psalm 118, 21-24, Isaiah 53, 9-12, Hosea 5.15 through chapter 6, verse 3, Zechariah 12.10, and more. All say that the Messiah will come and die and live again. Even the oldest book in the Bible, anybody know what that is? Job. What did Job say of his Redeemer? My Redeemer lives. From the very beginning, there was the promise of life through a Redeemer. Jesus even predicted his own resurrection when he was with his disciples. Take a look at, uh, let's see, Matthew 17. We'll look at just one of these. Verse 22. Actually, look at verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, this is right after the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until what? Until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Verse 22, While they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Many times Jesus told his disciples this. He knew it. John 2, Matthew 12, Matthew 15, these two verses in Matthew 17, Matthew 20, verse 17, Matthew 26, verse 30, John chapter 10, John chapter 16, all separate instances where Jesus told his disciples that three days after his death, he would rise again. The empty tomb remains the one unanswerable and critical piece of physical evidence that Jesus rose from the grave. You cannot dispute it. I was telling the kids on Friday when I was... uh, doing chapel for the school um, about Lee Strobel. Um, He wrote a book called The Case for Christ. You've probably read that, or maybe some of you know about Lee Strobel. Maybe you do or don't know about his background. Lee Strobel was a very vocal atheist and was challenged by someone to disprove the resurrection once and for all. And so he began to dig into historical documents to really go through the biblical accounts, to read extra biblical accounts of people who were there and saw what happened. And you know what happened to him? He bowed his knees to the Lord Jesus Christ because he realized as he, the more he studied and the more he dug into it, there was no way to explain it any other way. He couldn't get over the fact that the tomb was empty. And he wasn't there. How do you explain it? We just read this morning, morning, first John, and then Peter, and then Mary Magdalene, and then the other women, all came to the garden tomb, and what did they find? They all went in. They physically went into the tomb where Jesus was, and what did they report? The linens are there, the ones they wrapped him in, the headcloth was there that went over the body, but Jesus was not there. His body was gone. And the women were afraid at first that somebody had actually taken it. 
and stolen it. They must have laid him somewhere else. We can't find him. There are many people who have tried to explain that away. Maybe Jesus just fainted on the cross. Maybe he came close to dying but didn't die all the way. Maybe his metabolism slowed to the point where everybody thought he was dead, so they took him down off the cross and put him in the grave alive, and he escaped. Think that happened? Too many unanswered questions with that. How did he unwrap himself, for one? When they embalm a body, they don't just lay a blanket over you, they, they wrap you around and around with linen cloths so that the body won't stink. It's, it's you know, filled with embalming chemicals or agents to try to keep the smell down. Even one of us, the strongest one in this room, I don't think would be able to escape those wrappings by ourselves. Remember one time we were on a youth retreat and uh, we took duct tape and wrapped a kid from his shoulders down to his feet. We left his head. We didn't wrap his head. And, uh, you know, we didn't, we, we wrapped him all the way. So he was just one big duct tape thing. And, and then we left him on the floor. <laughs> we came back. We, we let him out. But he couldn't get out. He could not get out. He was totally at our mercy. How did Jesus unwrap himself? You have a little knife in there and, you know, cut through. How did he break the Roman seal on that door? There was a stone, a large stone, that was rolled on the door of the tomb. How did he get it open from the inside if he escaped? There was a seal on the outside of the door. How did he break that seal? How did he get past the Roman guards and overpower them? How did he... Now, all of this, of course, is assuming he's not God... He's a man. How did he, in such a weakened state, we went over a little bit on Friday night, what happens when a person is scourged. I mean, literally, the back of your body is just opened up. And then he was nailed through his wrists and through his feet to a cross, and his body was racked on that cross, a spear was shoved into his side while he was on the cross. You know, we get a little cold, and what does it do to us? Uh, I'm not going to go. I don't feel so good. We just were wiped out, and we want to lie. How could somebody who went through that possibly have gotten out of the linen wrappings opened the door, broke the seal, overcome, I think it's 16, if I remember correctly, Roman guards that were placed there, and then disappear. And then how could he encourage his disciples, if he was in such a weak state, to, to embolden them and change their lives after they saw him? It just doesn't make sense. Well, maybe the, maybe the body really was stolen. Maybe somebody came and took the body away. The chief priests were afraid that that was actually going to happen. And so they went to Pilate ahead of time and said, we heard that this deceiver said that he was going to rise three days after his death, 
We're afraid that some of the disciples are going to come and actually take the body away. We don't want to perpetuate his lies. And so please put a seal on the door and put a guard in front of the door so that doesn't happen. So the people who say that the body was stolen don't realize that they were trying to keep the body from being stolen in the first place. And so again, how would the disciples, who every last one of them after the death of Christ ran and were hiding, how did they all of a sudden get the courage to go face the the Roman soldiers and try to steal the body? Doesn't make sense. No, the body did raise from the grave. There is no other explanation for the empty tomb. And afterward, he appeared to many people. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to the other women who were there in the garden. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to 10 of the disciples at once in John chapter 20. He appeared to 11 of the disciples at once eight days later in uh, John 20, 24. He appeared to seven of the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias in John 21. 1 Corinthians 15 says that he was seen at one time by over 500 of his followers. Now, I enjoy a good courtroom drama. Maybe you do too. If witnesses were brought, and another witness was brought, and another witness was brought, and another witness was brought, and they were all saying the same thing, how many do you need to bring before you say, okay, that's the truth? Even in today's court, when somebody comes as a witness, that's how you're figuring out the facts, right? It's what the people say. And if you have corroborating witnesses, the facts are established to a greater degree. How many corroborating witnesses do you need to establish a fact? What if it was just Mary Magdalene that came and said she saw, she saw the Lord? Would you believe her? Maybe, maybe not. But if Mary came and then Peter came and said, I saw him too. Did you guys eat at the same restaurant? (laughs) But then all the women who came to the tomb, and then John, and then the other disciples all came. So what are you up to, 16, 17 people? And they all said the same thing. They all saw the risen Lord. He talked to me. I saw his hands, I saw his feet, I saw the scars in his body. It's him. No question about it. Are they all deceived? And then 500? You want to parade all 500 up at once and let them talk? On top of all this, the testimony and the courage and the writing of the apostles through the New Testament is peppered with references to the the resurrection. They preached it. Some of them to their death. Why would they do that? If Jesus wasn't really raised from the grave, why would they do that? Now, the resurrection's real. It did happen historically. It's not a myth. It's not a fable. It's reality. And if we want any chance of breaking the bondage of corruption for ourselves, of overcoming the sting of death and gaining the hope of everlasting life, 
and a personal resurrection to an incorruptible life, then it will only happen through the resurrection of Christ himself. We have to be connected to him. He was the first fruits, and then we are the ones who follow. His resurrection paved the way for ours. If you are in Christ, then you are raised. If you are not in Christ, then you are still in your sins. And you will not break through that bondage of corruption. Our only hope of resurrection is bound inseparably to his. And if you don't have this hope of resurrected life this morning, I want you to listen carefully because as we read in 1 Peter about the resurrection, he's going to tell us how we can be connected to Christ and understand that we can be resurrected as well. I'd like you to go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Let me reread those three verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I'd like you to consider three important truths about the resurrection with me this morning. One, the resurrection is confirmation of God's great mercy. Two, the resurrection is crucial to our new birth. And three, the resurrection culminates in eternal blessing and hope. First, the resurrection is confirmation of God's great mercy. Consider with me first the need for mercy. Why are we in this bondage of corruption in the first place? Well, one, we have to go back to the beginning to get the answer. Where did we come from? We were not, we're not here because we evolved. We're here because God put us here. We're here because God created the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, everything that there is. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. And look at verse 16. It says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. We are God's creation. And at creation, when God first created, created the earth, and first put man, Adam, on the earth, what did he say about it? Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. No bondage there, no corruption there, no death there. Death was introduced later. Why? Turn to Romans chapter 5. Verse 12. Adam, and think of it this way, we were there. A lot of us, maybe when we think about Adam sinning, saying, well, I wouldn't have. 
If I was there, I wouldn't have, knowing what I know now, I would have done what's right. No, you wouldn't. Adam is our representative. He's the federal head, and quite literally, our DNA is wrapped up in him. He's our great, 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 as far back as Adam. We came from him. And so even though we weren't born yet, every person in the world came from him. And what he did was representative of all of us. We would have done the same thing, no question. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and where did death come from? Yeah, came from sin. And it wasn't that Adam wasn't warned. Didn't God tell him that? In the day that you eat of it, speaking of the tree, you shall what? Surely die. Shall surely die. The corruption, the bondage of corruption that we find ourselves in today is because of our own sin. That's why it exists. And the reason we can't break through it is because we can't stop sinning. We're selfish to the core. We are anti-God by nature. We are humanistic by nature. And God has to come in and change us for us to produce righteousness. We can't do it on our own. We can maybe do some good things here and there, but they don't overcome the sin. We have all lied. We have all lusted. We have all been selfish. We have done everything that God has told us not to do, we've done. And that's why death is here. And that's why we can't overcome our own, because we're, we're tainted by it. We're, we're, not, we're incapable of paying for that sin ourselves, or overcoming it, I should say. For just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. There it is. And that brings us to the necessity of mercy. How are we going to overcome this bondage of corruption? It's, it has to be through the mercy of God. It has to be. We can't do enough good things in this life to make a propitiation for our sins, to satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. We can't do it. It's impossible. And so mercy is necessary. So let's consider, secondly, not only the necessity of mercy, but the reality of it. What do we find in the, in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and in reality in our lives? Is God a God of mercy? Absolutely, yes. He is. How do we know? Well, consider Adam's life. What did God tell Adam? In the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. So Adam ate of the fruit. What happened to him that day? Did he die that day? Negative. He didn't die that day. So did God not keep his word? How long did Adam live? Anybody know how old he was when he died? 930. This was pre-flood. Men lived longer in those days. So Adam was given a full life. God let him live out his life on this earth. He had children. He had grandchildren. He had great-grandchildren. Isn't that mercy? God could have that day ended his life, but he didn't. What did he do instead? God provided a way for him to cover the shame of his sin. 
It says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, that God made coverings of skin for them. Where did the skin come from? An animal. What happened to that animal? He died. So already at the very beginning, we see this, this idea forming in the Old Testament that God is going to take an innocent and kill it in place of the guilty. And that's what happened to that animal. And they, the skin's covered over the nakedness and the sin and the shame of Adam and Eve's sin. God predicted even then that there would be an ultimate solution to the sin problem. Look at Genesis 3, verse 15. As God is pronouncing a curse on Satan for his involvement in all of this, he says to him in verse 14, Because you have done this, speaking to Satan, or to the serpent, Cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then he says something really interesting. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's, true. That's still true, right? How many, how many ladies like snakes today? Not many. Every once in a while you see one. You know, somebody who loves animals and they'll, they'll hold the snakes and everything. But for the most part, there's enmity between us and snakes. We don't like snakes. What do they do? They're not good pets. You know, snakes have no memory. Little piece of trivia. So, like, if you, if you feed a snake and you pet it on its head, he's not going to remember that you fed it or that you petted him on his head. He just, he, they don't have the ability to recall past events. I don't know how they know that, but... <laughs> I forget where I was. Some, somebody was. Somebody was handling a big, huge python snake, and they were describing the snake, and that's one of the things they said, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. Don't want one for a pet. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And then he goes into the future. And between your seed and her seed, he, meaning her seed, one that would proceed from the woman, will bruise you on the head, a crushing blow. And you, the serpent, shall bruise him on the heel. A nagging bite but not a fatal blow. Someone in the future, the seed of the woman, would come and deal a crushing blow to Satan and death. Who was that? There was only one. From that day until now, God has continually shown himself to be a God of mercy. Psalm 86.5 is just one of hundreds of psalms. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy, unto all them that call upon thee. Aren't you glad that God is a God of mercy? I am. But all of God's mercy, and there are many, you could list them out if I started giving opportunity for testimonies this morning and say, how has God shown you his mercy in your life? We could be here for a while. If we really start to recall the things that God has done for us, just physically in this life, the enjoyment that he's given us, Beyond all of that, beyond all of the healing of sickness, beyond all of the circumstances that, that God has arranged in our lives and that we, that we count so dear, 
all of God's mercy culminates in the resurrection of Christ. That's where the greatest display of his mercy was shown. Read again 1 Peter chapter 1, verse, verse 3. Blessed be God. We praise God. We lift his name high because he is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy caused us to be born again through the resurrection. The resurrection is the confirmation of God's great mercy. It's the capstone of it. There's no greater expression of God's mercy than raising Christ from the dead and allowing us to be connected to Christ through faith so that we could live. What greater mercy is there than that? He's told you that you, death is done. There will be a time when you and I are living together and we'll recognize each other. We'll talk to each other for eternity. What are we going to say? That's mercy. God withheld his judgment, put it on his son, and then raised his son from the dead so that we could have the righteousness of God applied to us and live with him forever. That is mercy. There's no greater expression of mercy seen anywhere in the Bible, anywhere in history, anywhere in your life than the offer of hope. It's the most awesome thing there is. It supersedes all of our, our job problems. It supersedes all of our marriage problems. It supersedes all of our health problems. Because all of those problems are going to end in death. But our hope doesn't end. God's giving, given us something that's eternal. So the resurrection is confirmation of God's great mercy. Two, it's crucial to our new birth. If we believe in the salvation of our souls, and I know we do, and we believe that that salvation comes through the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and I know we do, and we deny the resurrection, we're stupid. It's kind of what Apostle Paul says. We're idiots. We are, we are of the, all people on the earth, the dumbest people. Why? Because if it ended in the grave, it ended there. If Jesus died and stayed in the grave, he just died, then he was able to pay for, our, for his sins, but not ours. The resurrection was the proof that God accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. It's the central component in the gospel. I'd like you to read 1 Corinthians 15 with me for a moment. Al read it this morning. Read it to you again. In verse 12. Now if Christ is preached, do we preach Christ we do. I hope you do. If we, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, that's what we've been preaching this morning. Christ is raised from the dead. We've been singing it. We've been saying it. We've been preaching it. We've been talking about it. If we preach that Christ has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection? If there is no resurrection, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is vain. And your faith is vain. It's useless. It's empty. It doesn't mean anything. 
Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. We're liars, in essence, because we witnessed against God that he did raise Christ, whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Wow. You are still in your sins, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of most men to be pitied. And in fact, the resurrection is not just mentioned. It has a prominent place throughout the New Testament in the gospel. And Al was right, absolutely right this morning. I think we've missed the boat in our presentation of the gospel. Because so often, you read the tracts, listen to how people present the gospel, even listen to yourself if you've had an opportunity to present the gospel. We talk about sin, talk about the holiness of God, and we present the problem of sin, that sin will be judged, and then we present the answer to sin, which is that Christ died on the cross to pay for your sin. Would you like to be saved? Yes. And we don't mention the resurrection? Why? Are we just forgetting it? The resurrection is crucial to salvation. You can't be saved without it. It's an impossibility. The resur if the resurrection didn't happen, you wouldn't be able to present that gospel. We need it there. It's a central component in the gospel itself. If you're there in 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 3. I delivered to you as of first of importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It was there. It was present. The preaching of Peter in Acts chapter 2, filled with references to the resurrection, proving that Christ was the Messiah, not only because of his miracles, which attest to his messiahship, but also because of his resurrection. It was a proof of who he was. In fact, it's what we must confess. Look at Romans chapter 10. Most everybody knows these verses by heart, I think. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's our confession. It's, it's what we should be speaking. In fact, Al put it well this morning as he was preaching. Romans chapter 4, verses 24 and 25. A crucial part of our salvation, the justification before God, happens because of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we could not be justified before God. To be justified, we need to be made righteous. And he's right. When Christ died on the cross, he paid for our sin and offered us forgiveness and redemption. But justification comes through the resurrection. Look at Romans 4. I'll just read verse 25. He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised. Why? For what? because of our justification, or for our justification. It's a central component of the gospel. It's what we must confess, according to Romans chapter 10. It's the instrument of our justification. And you're there in Romans 4, look at chapter 5, verse 10. 
For if we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved how? Through his life. Not just his death, but his life, his resurrection. It's a central component of the gospel. We have to understand that. It's the reason that we repent. Look at Acts 17. As Paul was defending the one true and living God before those who were on Mars Hill, he pointed to an altar with the inscription, the unknown God, and he says, what you call the unknown God, let me explain who he really is. And he went in and started to describe God as the creator. And uh, if you skip down to verse 30, it says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. And we repent because we want to avoid that judgment. We don't want to stand before God in our sin because we will be judged and punished for that sin. He will judge the world in righteousness through a man, that's his son, Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men. The proof that Jesus is the final judge is what? How did he prove it? He raised him from the dead. Why do we repent? Because we're going to be judged by the one who was raised from the dead. The God who made us. And not only that, the resurrection is the means of our daily power for living. You don't need to turn to it, but in Ephesians chapter 1, when Paul prayed for the Ephesians, he prayed that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened and that they would understand the hope of their calling and the power that was available to them through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So not only is the resurrection power involved in our salvation, but also in daily life. The same power that raised God from the dead gives us power to live for him. So the resurrection is confirmation of God's mercy. It's crucial to our new birth, and it culminates in eternal blessing and hope. And we'll end here in 1 Peter. Go back there to chapter 1. Verse 3, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's living. Our hope is alive because Jesus is alive. That's the bottom line. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior. Our hope is not dead. It's not empty. It's not vain because Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive for how long? Forever. How long is, is our hope alive then? Forever. We have the hope of eternal life forever because Jesus went there first. How does he describe it? Verse 4, it's an inheritance. All of us would love to get an inheritance, I would assume, to get something that we didn't earn. That's exactly what we get in Christ. It's an inheritance. Partially, we've, we're enjoying it now, but the fullness of it's going to come later. The fullness of it's going to come when the promise is, is fulfilled in the future. And how does he describe it? Imperishable. Greek word means non-decaying. It's like the Lamborghini out in the field. It just, it just nothing bothers it. It stays put. 
It doesn't decay. How many inheritances are frittered away? You like that little bumper sticker? I'm spending my grandkids' inheritance. God is not spending our inheritance. It's imperishable. It's also described as undefiled. It's pure in every way. There's no spot in it. There's nothing in it that causes rottenness. You know, when a, when a piece of food gets a little bit of a spot on it, it'll spread and it'll, it'll ruin it. There's nothing like that in our inheritance. It will not fade away. It's perennial. It's, it's always there. It cannot, cannot fade. And it's reserved. That word reserved, tereo, in the Greek, it's a military term that talks about guards guarding a prison. Carefully attended, guarded, keeping an eye on, protecting from loss or injury. And who's doing that? God is. And who's he doing it for at the end of verse 4? For you. He's doing that for you. How do we receive it? It's all by faith. You must, like every other person who's ever come to Christ, believe that he is the Son of God. You must believe that you cannot save yourself. You must understand that truth. And when you come to him, you come to him humbly, you submit yourself before him, and you thank him for his death and his burial and his resurrection to new life. If we repent of our sins and we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. And when we're saved, we are in Christ. And when we're in Christ, we receive eternal life. That's how it works. Are you saved today? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you repented of your sin? Have you come before God humbly and asked him to forgive you? If you haven't, I would invite you to. What a better day to get saved than on Resurrection Sunday. Jesus is alive. He's not dead. We will see him one day face to face. He is coming back to the earth. And we owe him our allegiance. Without him, we're doomed. With him, we're saved. I hope this morning that you're saved. Let's pray. Father, we're just so grateful for your word and how clear it is. Thank you, Lord, that the resurrection is a, a true historic event. It can't be denied. Thank you that your word tells us so much about it. Thank you, Father, that because of the resurrection of Christ, we can enjoy a living hope. We can enjoy understanding that we have an inheritance that's undefiled and unfading, reserved for us in heaven. Lord, help us to be more bold as Christians in our, pro our proclamation of the resurrection of Christ. I pray even starting with me that we might be more vocal as we have opportunity to share our faith with others, to talk about the resurrection and resurrected life, eternal life. I pray, Lord, that if there are some here today who have come, uh, maybe because it's Easter, that as they have heard your word, that you would help them to remember it, to contemplate what you have said, that if we believe in our hearts that you are the Son of God and confess with our mouths 
that he is raised from the dead, that we will be saved. Help our lives, Lord, to change. From day to day, help us to grow. I pray that we would realize that we have the resurrection power available to us every day to help us to live in righteousness. We can't do it on our own, but through Christ, it is possible. And I pray that we would be more effective witnesses and that we would love you more because of what we heard this morning. Pray in the name of your son who was raised. Amen.